love how Jesus changes lives. There's nothing like it. No one can change lives like he can at all, not even close. Matthew chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones." And even now the the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the, the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we just we thank you for the opportunity as a family to study your word, to worship in this way. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, We pray, Lord, that you would help us to glean everything that you want to teach us, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that we would have hearts, help us to have hearts that are teachable and malleable and and moldable, Lord. That we would just be changed by you to be made more like Christ Jesus, to be further conformed to the image of him. And so we commit it to you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to study it freely and having it not be illegal at least yet, Lord. So we thank you for that freedom. We're grateful, Lord, for it, and we ask that you bless those around the world, our brothers and sisters who do not have that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus, and we're we're introduced to to John, this, to John the Baptist there in verse 1 and 2, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he says in the beginning of verse 1, In those days. Now we, we've been looking at chapters 1 and 2. We're looking at his birth. And we're, last week we looked at the Magi that came later after his birth and so forth. So, it, so Matthew here by the Spirit just says, In those days. I and mean, that's just... A generic term to say this is when these events happen because 30 years had now t- transpired now 
around 30 years of between chapter uh, 2 and chapter 3. And so we're call, it's called the silent years, that basically that happened all of the time that Jesus grew up as a boy. Only Luke mentions a little snippet of his childhood. For the most part, in the Gospels, we don't see what happened uh, as he was growing up, as he was growing up in Joseph's house and, and being a carpenter and so forth. Um, and so now today we're introduced to this man, John the Baptist, here in verse 1. And it says that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So this character, John the Baptist, I remember as a new Christian, <laughs> when I first came to know Christ, I was like, who is this John the, the Baptist? Where's John the Pentecostal? You know, I mean, is this denominational? What is this? You know, uh, I, I, I had no idea, you know, what, I wondered why all these um, First Baptist churches, I mean, I was like, they weren't the first ones, you know, they weren't the first Baptist. John the Baptist was the first one. And, and so a lot of times people call him John the Baptizer and, because they're trying to avoid the distinction of a denomination or whatever. But he's the one that would, was baptizing people that we're going to see uh, this week and as we look at our our text. So he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Judea's was the, that wilderness there was just west of the Dead Sea, south of Jerusalem, and there's really nothing there. It was completely barren. It was a desert. You know, when we think wilderness, sometimes we think of the redwoods and mountains and you know all of that, but it's not the picture here. The picture here is a desert. It's the wilderness there uh, in Judea. And so why does John come preaching in the wilderness of Judea? Well, the first obvious answer is that because Isaiah the prophet prophesied that he would be. <laughs> but, but the practical reason why, or maybe the, a possibility of why God ordained it to be that way, is because maybe it's a picture of the condition of Israel. Because Israel at this point is barren. Israel is, is, is fruitless, and there hasn't been anyone that's spoken related to a prophet of God for 400 years. There's 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Can you imagine, you know, the year is 2015 right now. Let's just say that God hadn't been speaking since 1615, you know, 400 years. I, I imagine that, the, that there would be a pretty barren landscape spiritually in our country. And, and it's barren in many ways, and we've had people speaking for God for at least the, the whole lifetime of our country. So he, he came preaching in the wilderness in Judea, and this idea of a preacher is kind of the, the, the sense is, remember, John's, or Matthew rather, is writing to Jews about a Jew, about the, uh, the, the Jewish Messiah, and so he, and Matthew was a Jew himself, so it's very Jewish. And, and so he's giving this, this biblical basis for Jesus being the Messiah. And so this preacher, this word caruso in the Greek, literally means a crier or a, herald, a heralder, someone that heralds. You know, sometimes we think of, of um, people like um, Paul Revere. You know, the British are coming, the British are coming, you know. That's kind of the idea of someone that would yell out important information. They didn't have social media, obviously. They didn't have the Internet or phones or anything. So when there was a public announcement, they would have a town crier, someone that was uh, basically set apart to yell and cry out important news. In fact, some newspapers were called the Herald because they were announcing news and so forth. So um, this is what he was, is called to do. He's called to preach 
and prepare Israel for their Messiah. Now, before we look at what he said, let's look at verse 3 at the biblical basis for John the Baptist, because that's what these Jews would want that Matthew is writing to. It says, verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is right out of Isaiah 40. And we'll look at that more in depth when we get to Luke, because Luke's gospel really gets into it. But Matthew mentions it. And so again, he's speaking to Jews. He's letting them know that this Messiah is in part validated because his, per, his person, his pre-runner, or the person that came before him to prepare Israel is biblical and has a biblical basis. So John's ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah by preparing the hearts of the Jews. And that's what it means when it says there in verse 3, Notice there it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this would mean something very specific. Back in those times, when a dignitary or a king would come to your city, the roads were horrible. The Roman roads were a great improvement on that, but historically, roads were in terrible shape. So if a king or a dignitary was coming, it was your responsibility in the city, the leader of the city, to work on the roads ahead of time to make those roads um, accessible for the king so that the king or the dignitary wouldn't have to suffer through as many bumps and potholes and curves in the road and you know sometimes primitive roads have many different ways to them and you don't really know which way is the right way to go to on the the official road like does the road continue here or is the road continue there so they would have to make those paths straight they would have to make it clear for the king or the dignitary so that they would reach the destination appropriately That's what John was doing spiritually for the Lord Jesus. There were 400 years of spiritually crooked hearts needed to be patched up or prepared with repentance so that when the Lord Jesus came, that his destination, their hearts, they would be able to receive him. And so his, his ministry and his message needed to have fertile soil, the hearts of the Jews. And God knew that it would require them repenting, expressing their sinfulness in order to prepare their hearts for that message. Now look what the message was. Go back a verse in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I can just hear many in the modern church today saying, whoa, 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 John. Easy now. This isn't good marketing. (laughs) This is not a popular message, John. This isn't politically correct. Who are you to judge? You're not being very tolerant, John. How are you going to win friends and influence people? You need to give people what they want to hear so that you can tell them what they need to hear later. He doesn't do that. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I want to focus on that word repent because we don't talk talk about it very much in our culture. Sometimes people... In, in, I mean, it was very common back in maybe the 50s, 60s, early 70s. People knew what repent meant, especially the younger uh, aged people in our culture, they have no idea what repent means. And so we need to look at it because we need to repent. It's not just for the Jews preparing for the Messiah. God's called us to repent. And, he, and, and that's important because when we think about preaching the gospel, sometimes we're afraid to say the things that need to be said. Anybody with me here? Okay. We're afraid to do it because we think they're not going to like it. They're going to be repelled by it. But, but they need to hear it. So we need to understand what it is. 
It's the word metanoia. And, and it's a compound word. Meta means change. We get our word metamorphosis from it. Noia means to exercise the mind. And, and it has a depth to it. It's, it's, it's not just about thoughts. It's about actions. And we know that there's true repentance. And we know that there's false repentance. We see examples of both throughout the scripture. What's the difference? False repentance is just being sorry. It's feeling regret. It's feeling bad. It's feeling sad. It's, you're upset that you got caught. You remember that as a kid? You thought you had your parents so th- figured out. And you had this great plan. You thought it through. Every detail was covered. And then busted, disgusted, and cannot be trusted. You get just nailed. Oh, I got busted one time so bad. I said something to a neighbor girl that wasn't right. It was something really bad. She, I never thought in a million years she would tell my mom. And she told my mom, to my shock, my mom came out, you said what? And then I, would, I admitted it. I thought, if I, in a split second of just trying to do the right thing for my preservation, uh, if I just say the right thing right now, I could really blunt or get away with some things. So I just said, you know what? I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to tell the truth. And so I said, yeah, I did it. And she just grabbed me and put me in my room, and I was grounded for a few hours. That's about it. That's the extent of the discipline I received. And then I went and got back at that girl and got her grounded for the summer. But anyway, but uh, you feel bad when you get caught. By the way, I'm, I'm friends with her today, so it's all good. So I'm friends. We're, we're, we're friends. But it's not just getting caught. It's, it's really connected with faith. Faith and repentance are like two sides of a coin. You really can't have repentance without faith because some of us know very well from personal experience that we can try to not do something. Mark talked about it in his testimony. You can try and try and try in your own strength. You can turn away from something, but you really, for God to change change us and to really receive salvation to really have lasting change and freedom from the bondage of sin we have to really cling to something else we leave one thing and go to another and have faith in God and this world thinks they just clean themselves up in their own righteousness and their own works that somehow God will accept them and they they don't want to go to God to get cleaned up it's when I share my faith with people, sometimes I say, you wouldn't go outside of a shower and start trying to clean yourself up before getting in the shower, would you? And they say, no. And I said, well, that's what you're doing when you won't want to come to God with all of your filth. Just go to him. Get in that shower. Let him clean you up. He knows how dirty you are. So that's true for all of us here. So it's, it's a privilege. And the modern church, so many in the modern church today, they believe it's a bad word. They'll never say it. Some of the most prolific TV preachers today, well, you'll never hear them that word, repent. You'll never hear them say sin. You'll never hear them say hell. You'll never hear them say those things. And, and the Lord talks about people heaping up for themselves teachers that will give them what their itching ears want to hear. We need to hear about repentance. It's a privilege. God grants us repentance. And it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We're told that in Romans 2, chapter, uh, verse 4, where Paul wrote this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? As it's been said, said sin is not uh, bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And every time we engage in sin, we get addicted to it. 
There's not many sins that we can think of that they're not addicting. God knows they're bad for us, and we just have to let go of them. Have you heard the, the story of those monkeys, you know, when they want to catch them and they hollow out a coconut and they make the hole just big enough for their, their wrist, their hand to go through, and they put some peanuts in there, and the monkey puts their hand in there and grabs the peanuts, and then they can't let go. They can let go, but they don't know that they can let go, or they don't want to let go, and they end up getting trapped. And that's kind of a word picture for us in sin, because we, we could let go of that and give it to God, but we choose not to because we love our sin. And so God says that it's, it's my goodness that leads you to repentance. It's an expression of my goodness that leads you to repent and change. Repentance is a privilege. It's its own reward. And so we have to let go of our sin and turn to God, though, by faith with action. Repentance is based, is, is a result of repentance is action. I always say it's a U-turn in the road of life when I'm describing the gospel. And someone can say, oh, I've repented. So let's say, let's, let's equate repenting with a U-turn. Let's say that you're here in Manteca and someone calls you on the phone and says, hey, I'm doing a U-turn in Tracy, and then they show up here in Manteca, and you're like, you're here. And they're like, I repented. No, you're, you're here in Manteca. If you would have repented, if you had done the U-turn, you would have gone, been going the other way past now on your way to Livermore. So you didn't repent. See, a repentance is a change of mind to the point where you train, change directions. If you've never changed directions, you never really repented. It, it, and it has to do with clinging on to God, trusting in him, and turning to him. Now, we're provided a further description of John in verse 4. It says, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, we will get to see... Um, in Luke, God talk about um, Elijah, that John be coming in the power and spirit of Elijah. So he's, he's, you know, the Lord Jesus referred to him as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. There is no greater prophet than John. That's a pretty amazing thing to say. And Malachi 4, 5 tells them that before, before the day of the Lord, that Elijah would return. So they were looking for Elijah here. So this isn't the fulfillment, because I believe the two, one of the two witnesses in Revelation will be um, Elijah, and that will be the fulfillment of Malachi 4-5. But, but we're told that in Kings, Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And it was common for prophets to have um, a garment of coarse hair. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 4 re- reveals that to us. So this is, this is uh, Elijah coming, or John, or John coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, Matthew's writing to Jews. This is giving a biblical basis for what's going on. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, if you say repent, it's not going to work. Here we go. We see it working. <laughs> it, people responded to it. People responded to the opportunity for repentance. We think that they won't, but they, but they will. Telling the truth about themselves, telling them they need to repent, some will. Some won't, of course, but some will. We always expect the worst. They'll, we always prejudge. Oh, they'll never repent if we tell them they need to repent. Some will. We see it here. And they express this repentance by obeying a John in baptism, which is a great expression of humility for these Jews. Because converts or proselytes 
to Judaism that were Gentiles would be baptized. This wasn't a normal practice for Jews to be baptized. So this was basically saying we're as bad as Gentiles, we're as sinful as, as, as Gentiles, and they were confessing their sins. Notice it says at the end of verse 6. That word means to speak the same thing as. It means verbal agreement. When we confess our sins to God, we are acknowledging verbally that he is correct about our behavior being against his law, against his will for our lives. How often do you confess your sins? And I'm asking myself too. You know, we're told in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse, cleanse, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He knows that when we sin against him, we need cleansing. Our positional standing is still there. We're still, as God sees us positionally, we're still righteousness. I mean, righteous. He sees the righteousness of Christ put to our account. But there is a cleansing that needs to happen. And I go sometimes long periods of time, unfortunately, I'm just being honest with you, where I I haven't confessed my sins. I know that I sin, but I forget to confess them to him. And I'll go days without, because remember, the standard is perfection. And we fall short of that standard every day, don't we? We break the laws of the land. We have a bad motive. We uh, have thoughts that come in that we don't expel, and we keep them in our minds, and we, 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 uh, feed on them. We lust. We covet. There's all these things that we do. We're unloving to people. Or he tells us to do things that we don't do. That happens every day. We should be confessing sins to God every day. And, and, and that's what we see here. They are confessing their sins. They are acknowledging that they need the Savior as they're doing it. Whether they know it uh, mentally or not, they are, they are demonstrating that they need a Savior by confessing their sins publicly and being baptized in the Jordan. We're also supposed to confess our sins to one another. Ooh, that's a good one. That gets us good, doesn't it? Confess our sins. Not confess their sins to one another. That's what, that's what we're really good at, aren't we? This is what you did. And there's a place for that, for Matthew 18 and so forth. But we have to confess our sins to one another. And, and any, any healthy family does that. Any healthy family has family meetings where they say, you know, you've been doing this to hurt me or we need to work this out. And it's true for the church. We're a family. So we have to be humble and we have to admit our wrongs to each other. We need to be gracious with each other, forgiving one another. Why else would God continuously tell us to be bearing one another in love and to forgive one another if we didn't have great need? Because sometimes we're stumbled and we we can't believe that Christians are actually sinning. Well, God's not surprised that Christians sin. That's why he put in 1 John 1, 9. He knows that we fall short of perfection. So we need to be confessing our sins to each other. If we've sinned against somebody, we need to go to that person and ask for their forgiveness. You know, we like to quote James when it says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know what that's connected to? Let me read it for you. Confess your trespass to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's encouraging us that the potency of our prayers that he's talking about there have to do with relationships with one another, with humbling ourselves and, and working things out. You know, the more mature we are in Christ, the more 
we should be able to work things out with anybody and, and deal with those things and be mature about those things instead of maybe acting like a spiritual two-year-old, taking our toys and going home. Did you do that as a kid? Taking my ball and going home. We're done. We're done here. It's over. You did this to me. We're done. Taking the ball. What are you going to do now? You're going to play hopscotch? Well, that's going to be fun. I'm taking my football. Okay? But that's what we do spiritually at times. Now, notice the contrast that we see in verses 7 through 10 with these other people that we're introduced to. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not good marketing, John. Not winning friends and influencing people. Not expressing tolerance. He's just telling it how it is. And and they needed to repent. They didn't come to repent. They didn't come to confess their sins. That's not why they came. And God is always willing to accept the person who humbles himself and and acknowledges their need for forgiveness, but not so with the self-righteous one who is not looking for God's help and God's grace. Remember Jesus telling the story. He said, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So God recognizes the ones who admit their need for him. He's the one that God is merciful to. These Pharisees, and this is really the first time we're really introduced to them and the Sadducees, The Pharisees were about 6,000 in number. They were working men. They were laymen. They weren't professional uh, clergy. Uh, They were the legalists. And the Sadducees were the anti... uh, They didn't believe a lot of the supernatural in the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in demons or angels or any of those things. They were the elite. They profited from taking care of the temple and selling things at the temple, all of that. Annas, the priests, and Caiaphas, there was all a, a racket that they were engaged in, overcharging people at the temple. Jesus cleared out the temple two times uh, in his public ministry. So they were at odds against each other because the, the, the Pharisees were the legalists and the, and the Sadducees were the rationalists. So, and, and we have those today. We have legalists and we have rationalists that deny the supernatural but they did unite in coming against Jesus. And so we're introduced to them. They were very proud about their spiritual condition. They did think that they had an advantage because they were descendants of Abraham. Uh, but, they, but we know that those that are the children of Abraham are ones that have the faith of Abraham. And so because of Christ. So they, they, weren't, they weren't automatically in because... Um, they were children of Abraham. And people say that today, to, don't they? With, well, my family's Christian. I, you know, I'm an American, right? Of course. The polls say 80% of the Americans say they're Christians. How are you enjoying that out in the road? How are you enjoying that living in this world with 80% of this, this nation's Christian? I mean, it's just like, 
almost like, you know, like fellowship 24-7 when you're out there, right? Absolutely not. It's a whole different idea about what it means to be a Christian than what, what uh, God says about what it means to be a Christian. But they were doing the same thing. We're children of Abraham. It's our lineage. We're trusting in that. And, and, and you know, John was clear to say, nope. God doesn't need you. He could raise up rocks that could be children of Abraham if he wanted to. And now he focuses on Jesus there. He says, I indeed baptize um, you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's a great model for the Christian. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's saying, later he's going to say, I must decrease and he must increase. And so he says, I, you know, this baptism is for a purpose. It's for repentance. It's pre- to prepare the heart, the hearts of the people of Israel uh, to be prepared for forgiveness and for the Savior. Uh, but I'm not worthy to carry his sandals, which was saying a lot. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire is always a picture of holiness, and, and so he's able to consume through this spirit the things that we want him to burn away in our lives. And, and so when he fills us with this Holy Spirit, when we're empowered for service, as we're going to see Jesus be in a moment, he comes and he helps us to live the holy life that he's called us to live. Again, we can't do it on our own strength. We can never just try harder. He needs us. He wants us to depend upon him, to abide in him, so that he can bear fruit through our Lives. So John's saying, don't look at me. Look at the one that's going to be coming. And he says in verse 12, his, that means Jesus' winnowing fan is in his hand. This was something they would hold in their hand, and they would put the wheat in it, and they would wave it in the air, and the chaff would be separated from it so they could know what was really wheat and gather the wheat and put it in their barns and so forth. And so he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand and will thoroughly, notice the word thoroughly there in verse 12, He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. That's the place where they separated the the kernels from the stalks and so forth, the threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you think you're just right because you're descendants of Abraham, because you have that lineage, but you are not bearing fruits that show that you're true sons of Abraham because he... You know, because they hadn't received him by faith and, and had their sins forgiven. So he's warning them. Now that Lord Jesus enters the scene, look with me in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For, it is, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now Jesus did not need to repent. He was sinless. He never sinned. At one point in his public ministry, he says, Who among you convicts me of sin? Nobody could say anything because he was sinless. And so he didn't need to repent. And that would have been confusing for the crowd. It was confusing for John. Like, what are you doing? This is completely inappropriate. You don't have a need to repent. But Jesus was doing something greater than what they realized. He was actually pointing himself to the cross. He was was pointing them to his cross. 
putting his sights on the cross in at least two ways. The first way is that he was identifying with sinners. Although he had no need to repent, he was identifying with them in the sense that he is, he is saying, I am a human being, and, and I am going to go through this because you have gone through it, but I'm doing it for a different purpose. It's prophetic. The reason why I'm doing it, it's prophetic in pointing to my, my death, my burial, and resurrection. When we do water baptisms, we talk about this, that when you go down into the water, it's like you're in a watery grave. And then when you come out of the water, you're, it's like you're being resurrected. And so Jesus took this, this ritual and he made it into something new so that when we get water baptized, and he commands every Christian to be water baptized, and we'll have one coming up, we are obeying him. We are obeying him in water baptism. And when we do so, we're identifying with his death and his burial and his resurrection. And we're, and we're saying also that our lives, our old lives are dead and buried and that we have new, a new life in Christ. And someday he'll raise our bodies to where we'll have new bodies um, to enjoy him with. So this is in part what he's meaning when he says that which needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. Verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now notice in the middle of verse 16, it says the heavens were opened to him, to Jesus. This is another way of saying he's seeing in the Spirit. And he's seeing the heavens open to him. And he saw, notice he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. A dove has always been a symbol of peace and gentleness. And he is, this is the, you know, the Father's about to speak here. So we're, we're having God demonstrate his validation of this Messiah. Again, Matthew's writing to Jews. He needs to demonstrate to them. That, there's, that God's stamp of approval is on his son and on the promised Messiah. And so he um, has all three members of the Godhead involved in this. There's a few examples in Scripture where all three members of the Godhead are mentioned, uh, all in a, in a verse or two. So here he is there, he, and, and he, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, in John's Gospel... We're told that John the Baptist was told ahead of time that, that he would see this occur. And when he saw this occur, he would know that this is the one. And, you know, he's, when he saw him coming, he knew. But he would be confirmed when, when, this, when he would see this dove descend upon him. And we're not told anyone else really saw this except um, John and, and the Lord Jesus. It could have happened, but we're not, to my knowledge, explicitly told that. But this is Jesus being anointed for service. He's about to enter his public ministry. So he is anointed, just like a king would be anointed. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we receive Christ, we're anointed with the Holy Spirit. First John tells us that. We're anointed by the Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit. And when we're baptized with the Spirit, which can happen at salvation or after, we're empowered by the Spirit for service. Verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I like it that it says suddenly. That means no one was expecting it. (laughs) What was that? 
Now, there are three times in the Gospels where we're told that the Father spoke. One was at his baptism. The other is at the, what's called the transfiguration. And the other is in John chapter uh, 12 when Jesus asked for the Father's name to be glorified. And the Father spoke and said, I have glorified it and will continue to glorify it. So preparing him for the cross, right before the cross in, in John chapter 12. Now, we see, we could just skip over this, but this is very important for us to see. This is God the Father expressing his heart for the Son. He's saying, this is my beloved Son. He didn't have to say beloved. He could have said, this is my Son. He said beloved. It means one who is loved. This is my Son that I love, in whom I am well pleased. What's interesting, in the original language, the language is very strong that it's already... It's already happened. In other words, everything that the Father is pleased with has already occurred. It's, in other words, it's saying, in whom I am already well pleased. So every, the Jesus' life, here we have the best commentary on what happened in the Lord Jesus' life before he began his public ministry. What was he doing? He was pleasing the Father. He was obeying the Lord. He was growing up. He was learning um, discipline by the things that he suffered, we're told in Hebrews. He was submitted to the Father. He was busy about the Lord's business, even as someone that was not old enough yet to be a rabbi, which was 30 years of age. And so he was, he was being obedient to the Father, again, being sinless. So the Father says, this is my beloved Son, the Son that I love. I'm already pleased with him. He's beginning his public ministry. I'm already pleased with his life. Jesus hadn't done one miracle. He hadn't taught anybody yet in his public ministry. He hadn't healed anybody. He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. He hasn't done any of these things. And God the Father is already pleased with his life. God looks at our lives. It matters to him what we do and what we say and how we behave. He's watching. And and so God's love for us is unconditional. And he's well pleased with us because we're his children as well. We're adopted. We're not his son like, obviously, the Lord Jesus. We're adopted into the family, but we're, 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 um, you know, we're adopted as sons into, and daughters into the beloved. So, so here God validated his son publicly as the Messiah, and, and it, so we see this importance of him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, validates the Messiah. He prepares the heart of Israel for their Messiah. And repentance for us is part of preparing our hearts to receive the gift of salvation. He's going to say in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is going to say, repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance, you can't separate it. Acts chapter 17, Paul said by the Spirit, God has called all men everywhere to repent. All men in every, in every location in, in this world, he calls to repent. And so, as Christians, the themes of repentance, the themes of confessing our sins, especially to one another, is very important. We need to be repenting of our sin. Being, I mean, sometimes we think, well, the more mature I get, the less, re- the less repenting I'll have to do, and the less confessing of sin I'll have to do. And that is not true. The most godly people we know seem to be more aware of their, fault, their faults and their shortcomings. The closer we get to God, we're getting closer and closer to the standard of perfection. 
So as we get closer to that standard of perfection, we're noticing more and more the flaws in ourselves and how sinful we are. Paul wasn't using hyperbole when he said, I am the chief of sinners. He'd walk with the Lord for decades by that point. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how perfect he is and how flawed he is. Just like Isaiah the prophet before the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. I am undone. He's seeing the Lord. Instantly he's aware of his sinfulness. So the danger is that we could be coddled and self-deceived to a point where we think that everything's fine as we go through our Christian life and we're not confessing any sins, we're not repenting of anything, and everything's going great in our lives. We think we're right in the middle of God's will and there's nothing that needs to change in our lives. And the whole time God is saying, as you get closer to me, you're going to be repenting. More and more as you get closer to me. You're going to be confessing your sins more and more to me. Confessing your sins to one another more and more all the time. So I think that's what he's saying to us this morning. To confess our sins. To be humble. To to repent. to, to, To change that direction. Maybe some of us are here today and we know we're in willful disobedience to God. We're going to be receiving communion in a little bit here. We need to repent before we receive the the symbols of of what saved us. We need to repent and ask forgiveness and, and aim by God's grace and by his power and by his spirit to live a life that's pleasing to him. Mark quoted that scripture in Romans chapter 12, have our minds renewed, but before that it says to live, to walk worthy of the calling or to, 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 uh, to offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. And that message is getting lost in the, in the church today. There's, it's, it's, people are getting less and less confronted with their sin. And people that are in churches that teach the Bible are not as comfortable as they are in other churches that never really teach the hard verses, the things that need to confront us, things that, need to, that God wants to change in our lives. So they're going even further down the wrong direction because they're not, being re- they're not understanding that holiness is something that we need to keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Peter said, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God wants us to confess our sins to him and become more and more holy in a practical level. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to be holy. We want to please you with our lives, with our thoughts, with our mouths, with our hearts, with our relationships with one another. We confess our sin of pride and self-dependence, and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would change us. We do turn to you and away from living in rebellion to you. Help us to live obedient to you every day, Father, for your glory. Help us, Father, to abide in you so that you can bear fruit through our lives. We pray, Lord, as a church that we would walk holier and holier by your grace. Commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare-